0: We will dive in here. Uh, This message kind of goes right along with last week's. He is here. Last week, we looked into the state of things in the Old Testament. And you can put your finger in Psalm 103 if you'd like. We'll be reading some verses there in a moment. Um, But last week, we looked at the Old Testament state of things for both Israel and Judah. And if you were here, you know that things were not good. The prophets had much to say about the desperate condition of the human heart. They had much to say about the great need for a savior. And at that point it was very much national and historic historic national issue with the Jews in particular. But then we drew the connection to modern times and the other side of the gospel and we noted how our own hearts just like ancient Israel's were once lost in darkness. We were cut off from God. Though God was active and working in the world, he was not with his people in the sense that he would be following the incarnation following the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. He was not with his people yet. Not because he isn't loving or wasn't loving. He is, but it was because the Messiah had not yet come. And so one of the main ideas we touched on here on the screen for you was this, the defining element of human history before the time of Christ was the anticipation of his coming. God still saved people in Old Testament times, He saved those who put their faith in him and in the promises of a coming deliverer, a Messiah, but it was not the same. His work was more limited than it is now. He had not poured out his spirit on all flesh. The Savior had not been given as a gift to the world to draw his people from every corner of the world, to break down walls of hostility that divided Jew and Gentile. Prior to the coming of Christ, the world largely was still swallowed up in a great spiritual darkness. And as we've noted before, it is critical when we discuss the spiritual darkness of the world that we not frame it in terms that make us appear as the victims of that darkness, because in reality, we are the perpetrators of that darkness. The darkness of the world has come from the darkness of the human heart. Is this not clear when we read verses such as these in Ephesians 2? Paul alludes to this before Christ and after Christ reality. That's not uh, victim language, that's guilt language. But because of his great love for us, this is where the miracle of it all comes in, the dawning of the light, the coming of the Messiah, the gospel on the earth, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And so last week, then, we spoke of this great longing on the part of the sheep of God's pasture, this lost sheep, their deep longing for Emmanuel, the great shepherd, the, the saving one, the Messiah who would one day come, and the defining element of that would be he would dwell among his people. He would dwell with his people. And this truly is the miracle of Christmas, that God is now with his people through the person of his Son, and that is cause for great joy. And think of the ways God describes his relationship to his people through the Messiah. To get just a little bit grammatical on you this morning, think of the prepositions. They're holy prepositions. God is with his people. God is among his people. God is for his people. God's people are in Christ. The Savior has come from heaven. He has come to earth to dwell among those who are his own. These are all holy prepositions defining the relationship between God and his people. And so our theme last week, and this came out in song, was O come, O come Emmanuel, the one who's promised to be with his people, come and dwell among us. And this morning, I hope that cry of our heart continues with another timeless Christmas song, O come, long expected one. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And then also a theme for today, with that longing comes the the solution, the resolution, which is he is here. He is here now. He is among us. Christ is come. He is among his people. Last week's message involved some heavier passages from the Old Testament prophetic books. It might not have been the most lighthearted or upbeat Christmas sermon you've ever heard, But I think such truths are so important to dig into so that we remember why Christmas is, why it exists at all. It's because of the helplessness, the plight, the hopelessness of mankind, and the darkness of our hearts. It's because of this that the light had to come to dispel the darkness. These truths are important to work through so that we know the truth about our past, where we've come from so that we know the truth about ourselves, our own hearts, and finally, that we might know the truth about God's intentions in light of it all, what he planned to do about it and now, in fact, what he has done about it. He is here. Since we waded through some of the, those more difficult passages last week, I hope today's, some of these main passages can be a, a bit more uh, encouraging and a blessing to be refreshed by the the promise of the gifts that God gives to his people. We often associate Christmas with a spirit of giving and we're going to talk about the ultimate giving this morning. We want to relish today his promises to us because of our plight. We want to savor the sweetness of his presence among his people in spite of our selfishness and sinfulness. And we want to rejoice in all that he's given to us by giving us himself. That's the gift. This truly is the heart of Christmas, Christ given to his people that they may come to God through him and know him and live forever with him. This is his gift to the world. Psalm 103 really sets the stage for this sermon this morning. I hope these words reawaken the wonder of it all in your heart. So let's read this together. It is on the screen, but I invite you to read in your Bible if you have it with you as well. Psalm 103, the first five verses. This almost has a ring to it, similar to what Mary would sang out um, over what God had done in, in and through her, some parts of this. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. And then notice especially this phrase, forget not all his benefits. And then the psalmist will elaborate on this. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Forget not all his benefits. He is good to his children, far better than we could ever deserve, far better than any earthly father or mother could even dream of being to the child in whom they delight in. And whose joy it is to bless and to give gifts to and to love and dote upon. And yet, I want to touch on something that's bothersome as far as a twisting of this passage this morning. And it's right in the middle in verse 3. We find this promise, this benefit of God, the gift he gives to his people. It says, he heals all your diseases. This stirs up some tension sometimes in the hearts of believers Because the fact is, the reality is, in the body of Christ, we grapple with much disease, just like about everyone else in the world. There are times, and we praise God for them, when he supernaturally works and physically intervenes in a situation, but that doesn't always happen. Sometimes it seems like it doesn't often happen. And so it's very sad how this language of a good father giving good gifts to his children, it's sad how it's been sometimes pulled out of context and twisted and used to deceive people. Because if you listen to false teachers, and some of them are on TV, obviously, some are in very large congregations, some are in very tiny congregations, they're everywhere, but if you listen to false teachers, they will try to persuade you to pursue Christ motivated out of selfish gain or even greed, self-interest. And what this sometimes sounds like is you'll be promised great financial dividends if the quality of your faith is pure enough or if you first sow this amount of money into their ministry. Like, you need to give this amount and then we promise. There's a big payout coming from the Almighty. Other times, this takes on the guise of physical health and prosperity though God has not promised these things. They will take a verse like Psalm 103.3, remove it from its context, a verse that says he heals all your diseases and apply it in ways that are not faithful to God's heart or his intentions. And so we have to ask, can we take that snippet, can we take that phrase out of this psalm and can we apply it universally to all of God's people in every age and on every part of the earth Throughout all time. No, we cannot. What this verse reflects more than anything is the promise of the eternal state of things that God has in store and in mind for his people. The coming kingdom that will last forever. We get a preview of this in the Gospels. If you've read the first four books of the New Testament, you know this. When Jesus walked the earth and and taught and ministered for that very brief time, I mean, this is just a few years out of the entirety of human history, Jesus was actually on the move doing the gospel preaching and call to repentance and speaking of the kingdom that he was ushering in. We have this preview through his ministry of what life will look like in the resurrection, in the final state of things, in eternity. We have a beautiful preview from his ministry because what he did as he traveled throughout these regions is he did, in fact, heal every single physical disease that he encountered, maybe with the exception of his time in his hometown. Among his own people, he could do few mighty works because of their lack of faith. But virtually everywhere else he went, we read things like he healed all their diseases. Even many of the people who he knew would not love, serve, or believe in him, he healed their diseases. We know this because of passages like Matthew four twenty three and 24. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And what does it say? Healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all. And this is very comprehensive language, isn't it? All who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Think of the the dramatic and beautiful fulfillment this was of statements such as that in Psalm 103.3 when it says, he heals all your diseases. But is Jesus giving a a paradigm for what to expect for believers during their time on earth? Or is he giving a preview of what is coming in the eternal kingdom, in the resurrection? It seems that the words of Psalm 103.3 are more prophetic in nature. Because certainly there was something of a literal historical context back in the olden times. Maybe if God's people would have kept covenant with him perfectly in all the ways he stipulated, maybe he would have delivered them out of all disease. It's a moot point, isn't it? That never happened. It was impossible. They had not been given hearts yet to keep covenant with him We never would be able to keep his covenant the way he stipulated. It could only come through grace, by faith. So what this psalm likely is alluding to primarily is exactly what Jesus demonstrated in his brief window of ministry on the earth, which was showing what life would ultimately be like in his kingdom, in the resurrection, and when all was said and done. Because think of it in these terms. In virtually every other time in history has not God lovingly allowed his people to experience trial and heartache and at times crippling disease? Through which, though it's often difficult, through which he seems to do the most glorious work that he does through people. And we're not excited about this at first, because those seasons, there's nothing easy about them. And yet I know I'm not the only one who can stand here and tell you with a clean conscience before God, far after the fact, if I could go back and and change some of those dark and very difficult seasons, I would not in a million years. Because there were precious, eternal things that God was doing in and through me to refine me, to prepare me more, to be with him, that I would not have achieved any other way, I don't think, or he would not have achieved any other way through me. And so when false teachers take a verse like this and use it treacherously, it can be very discouraging in the church because what they'll teach and what they contend is this, that because God loves you so much, which is undeniable, he loves his people, he loves his children. Because he loves you so much, he sent Jesus to purchase with his precious blood your physical health and your material prosperity. That's what it means, they say, that by his stripes you are healed. And he's more or less bound, obligated, to do what you demand in his name. And if you don't experience those things that you ask of him, it's because your faith is deficient. And yet, it's not hard to step back and evaluate this, is it? Has there been anyone ever, except in that brief two to three year window of Christ being on the earth, has there been a time ever in which a professing believer, from the moment of their professing faith on, never had a cold, never had a sore throat, never struggled with anxiety or any kind of mental illness, where a community of God's people never had to deal with heart disease or maybe Alzheimer's or diabetes or cancer or arthritis? Has there ever been a time in which a community of God's people has not had to walk through those dark valleys? Are there believers who have never gotten sick eventually and died of anything ever? Has that ever happened? With a few minor exceptions, like, you know, a whirlwind and a fire and a godly man named Enoch. Point to where this community is if it exists upon the earth. Or what about those who proclaim, very boastfully so, that they have this supernatural gift of healing power? And if you've ever experienced any of these sorts of conferences, this was kind of a a little bit of my religious background, but there's these big meetings and these professing gifts of healing, and they'll have all kinds of people come up. And what are all the miracles that happen before people's eyes? It's it's usually headaches or backaches or knee aches. not saying God can't or maybe didn't always work in those situations. Perhaps he did. But when have you ever seen a person who boasts of the gift of healing power into children's primary in Salt Lake. I mean, are not kids the ones the Bible says believe easier than anyone, that enter the kingdom the easiest, that have faith the easiest? What's the faith of a child? It's what we have to, to mimic to get into the kingdom of heaven, because they believe easily. And wouldn't that be the most sensible place to go to stir up faith that would be sufficient to heal and eradicate all disease, if that's really what God has called his people to claim and to own for themselves? But when have you ever seen that happen? It's quite clear, isn't it, in verses like Psalm 103.3, that God is not making a universal promise to believers on earth that they will never face disease or heartache. Rather, God is giving glimpses through verses like these and through the testimony of the gospel writers. He's giving glimpses of the life that will forever be in his kingdom. And this is the life that Jesus came to bring when he was Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. All you have to do is fast forward to the very end of the book. And you can see in beautiful, pristine pictures, word pictures, what God has in mind for his people in the end. Revelation 21, 2 through 4. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And you might recognize some of this language after our series in the church on the church. A bride prepared as a a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Does that sound familiar? Emmanuel, God is now with us, he is here. And then what's gonna define our eternal life in him? We're with him, he's with us, our life is in him. They will be his people, And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. For you grammarians, what kind of a word is he will or phrase? That's future tense. He will one day wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. I've wondered sometimes, there there could very well be some very happy tears, I would think, but I'm thinking he's at least talking about the bitter kind, the sad kind. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. Why? For the old order of things has passed away. This is a difficult truth for Christians on earth to wrestle through, but friends, though his kingdom has come in our hearts, our bodies are still a part of the old order of things that is passing away. But one day, All will be renewed. The spiritual that's alive now will be caught up by the physical in his kingdom. All you have to do is read passages like Romans 8, right? When it says all of creation is still groaning. It's not a good groaning. It's this uh, groaning for liberation from our bondage to decay. All of creation. It's in bondage. It's decaying the physical. The old is passing away. If you turn to Revelation 22, verses one through three, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. And there's a good chance some of this language is metaphorical and symbolic. Some of it might be very literal. Down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Meaning life is always in season in God's kingdom. We're always, ever, eternally nourished in his presence in the resurrection. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And then look at this. No longer will there be any curse. At present, we're still dealing with the curse, the fallout. And so what we find in passages like Psalm 103, which make great promises from God to his people, here's the point I want you to get down deep this morning. God lavishly loves and blesses his children primarily, not by giving them earthly material things, but by giving them himself. That's God's true gift to his people, the giving of himself to them. It's not that God never blesses his people materially, sometimes he does, and it's to be used for an eternal purpose. It's not that God doesn't sometimes bless his people with longevity. A long life into their, much into their golden years. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. The point is, he has given us himself. When God promises to remove disease, we have to realize disease sometimes involves much more than just literal bodily disease. If you read the entirety of that passage again in Psalm 103, what's the context of all the other gifts, the benefits he's giving to his children, his people? What are the most formidable diseases that plague us? It's addressed in the very first benefit, verse 3. Who forgives all your sins, this verse says, and heals all your diseases. I think you can, this one's back on the screen, the next slide here. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What does God give to his people by giving them himself? What does he give by sending his son to the earth in the incarnation, the miracle of Christmas? Primarily, the first one, forgiveness of sins. That's why and how we can live with him forever. And then healing of disease, and that includes spiritual And also the promise of future healing of all literal disease. And then redemption of our lives from the pit, which I think we can take to mean a very literal pit of the grave, the tomb, but also a spiritual grave of eternal separation from him. And then next, we see that he supernaturally enables our hearts to experience genuine love and compassion, things of which the natural man is incapable of on his own. And then it ends by saying one of the benefits is he satisfies our desires. Desire is a fascinating word, biblically. All the suffering of earth can ultimately be traced back to the desire of human beings for something other than their God, other than the one who created them. And so Christ's coming and the heart of Christmas is just this. Though the world is still very dark and fraught with trial and heartache, God is now with his people And that makes all the difference. That's the miracle of it all. With all this in mind, I want to to direct your attention to another psalm, a very famous one. I don't have this on the screen for you, but is there a psalm more famous perhaps than Psalm 23? Have those words not been used as a balm at who knows how many funeral services or memorial services? I want to ask you, what don't we read in Psalm 23? We don't read... I have so much faith that God now wants me to have a safe and and fiscally prosperous life on earth, I have so much faith that that's my reality, that because he loves me, he would never dream of letting me walk through any shadowy valley, because certainly to let me suffer and walk through a shadowy valley would mean that he does not love me. There's no way a loving God would ever have a purpose for my suffering. And so my faith is such that I know what God wants is for me to have a safe life on earth and prosperous materially. Is that what Psalm 23 says? What does it say? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because evil is something I'm never going to have to contend with? No, it's because you are with me now. Because the shepherd is with me, I can walk through any dark valley, even the darkest, the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have to fear. Why? Because he's with me. Is this not the same language of the nativity? Emmanuel, God is now with us. What's the obvious implication? In this life, there will be dark, shadowy valleys that we're led into valleys sometimes of great evil that God in his holy sovereign love has ordained to allow us to walk through because he knows more than we do. He sees what we don't see. And he loves us enough to let us walk through times and seasons that are going to produce in us a readiness to be with him. His kingdom coming here and now on earth is is not to eradicate anything that might cause us discomfort. It's actually to prepare a bride for himself that will be ready to be with him forever. He's actively, right now, in the process of making ready his people to step from this life into the next and be with him. And it's a hard reality to face, but it's often through suffering that that glorious, weighty work happens most effectively. And that's not good news necessarily in a certain human sense or earthly sense. It's not always welcome news, but it's glorious reality. And it's him being with us through those times that makes the difference. And so Christmas, more than anything, is meant to drive home this great eternal truth. In this very dark and lonely world, you are not alone. If you're his, his child, if you've trusted in him, if you believe in the son, if you've repented and asked him for his forgiveness and his grace, then in this very dark and lonely world, you, his child, are not alone. That's the real miracle of this season. And so it should break our hearts that so much false teaching about suffering permeates our modern evangelical culture. And please, this morning, don't mishear what I'm saying. I am not saying that God never heals. I think he does. I think there are innumerable, credible, academically verified accounts of such things throughout church history and such things even in our own day So please don't hear in my words that I don't think we should pray for God to providentially move at times, to bless someone with renewed health and with more time on the earth to be useful to his kingdom and with those who God has given them to care for. But God also intends, I believe, to allow us to travel many dark valleys, even of the shadow of death, because he loves the true sheep of his pasture enough to prepare their hearts for eternity in the most gloriously weighty ways imaginable, (laughs) but they're effectual ways. And here's where the rubber really meets the road with this topic. It is the easiest thing in the world for professing believers to say they love God when life is going well. It's the easiest thing in the world, and I don't fault anyone for that. I don't think any of us would fault each other for that. It's, It's easy to say, We love and praise God when all is well. It's the easiest thing in the world when things are good in life to say that I love the Lord with all my heart and my heart is beating for the resurrection, for eternity with God in heaven. That's true. It's something else entirely to be given the opportunity to prove that. That's a lot different experience. And yet God loves his people enough to give them opportunities to prove the genuineness of their faith. Those opportunities often involve some measure of earthly suffering. And so I want you, as we contemplate the true meaning of Christmas and God coming into the darkness and bearing the infirmities of his people, consider after he is no longer on the earth and now the gospel is making its way across the earth, consider the message that was often spoken to the churches Christians who are now contending as redeemed people in a very dark world, what were the things that would often be said to them through letter? First Peter 3.14, to the church, even if you should suffer for what is right, in this case, it's just you're suffering because you're doing what's right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. First Peter 3.17, for it is better if it is God's will Notice the if, that's a humble word because we don't always know what God's will is when it comes to suffering. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 1 Peter 4.1, what is the church encouraged to do? Since Christ suffered in his body, what should we do? Arm yourselves, ready yourselves with the same attitude. And then what a interesting thing he says next, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. You have to know this applies to true believers. When you've suffered to certain degrees in your body, it has a way of putting to death things that used to be really important earthly besetting passions and sins. Because all the the weighty things of eternity come into very sharp focus when you realize. Your life is very fragile and your days might be very few. It has a way of putting to death that which is passing away and readying your heart for eternity. 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you to his what? What's the vision? What's the destination? What's the goal for the church? Eternal glory. The God who called you there in Christ, what does he say? After you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. If if you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that he he probably had more suffering than about anybody. I mean, the beatings he endured, having stones thrown at him until people were pretty sure they'd killed him, and then it turns out he's not dead yet. Being thrown into cold, hard prisons, naked, starving sometimes, beaten with blows, spit upon, likely. And yet, Paul had such an eternal focus that he was able to refer to those sorts of trials and sufferings in his life, and how did he refer to them? Second Corinthians 4.17, as light and momentary troubles. <laughs> I'd say he had a, probably a better perspective than we do on suffering, right? What are, what are these troubles doing? What did Paul understand that we sometimes don't understand? These things are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs the suffering itself the significance of it, the severity of it. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because this world is not your friend any longer. It's not your home. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then our ultimate example when it comes to suffering on the earth was Jesus himself, Hebrews 2.10 He's he's about the work of bringing his sons and daughters to himself forever, and it refers to this and says, in bringing many sons and daughters, where? To glory, to the the conclusion of all things, the, the kingdom come. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Everything about the ministry of the gospel and the incarnation, Jesus His perfection was shown how? Through what he suffered to bring life and healing. It was through his actual suffering that God perfected everything that he was about in the the story of redemption. This was the right path for Christ. It was a holy path set before him, and it was not easy, but it was good. It was right. We read in Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. And what was he familiar with? Pain. And what, what will we go to any length to avoid? <laughs> I'm not saying that's bad. If you've got a headache and you have some Advil, great, take it. What a blessing from God. I'm not saying, like, torture yourself just to prove how Christian you are. That's not what we're getting at. But Jesus was familiar with pain in, an, in a very, very palpable way. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and, he was, and we held him in low esteem. What does this prove about the ministry in the person of Christ? That his joy was not rooted in life on earth or earth's comforts. It was rooted in the eternal kingdom and he loves us enough, This might, again, this might not sound like quite the Christmas miracle you you'd want to hear about today. He loves us enough to call us to follow him in this path. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. What does that mean? Think of how the world runs after all the things they want. Think of how they, they've, they've built this house of cards up in their mind that, you know what, I'm just going to live for myself, for pleasure, I'm going to do everything I want to do, take whatever I want to take, sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I'm sure if there's a God, he's loving and nice enough, he's just going to forget about it all in the end. And so the world, they have, they have their, their fun on the front end of things, just assuming everything will be fine in the end. That's what Jesus is referring to. You find your life by your own terms. You find the things you think give meaning to life, You've, the things you think life is about, Instead of considering eternal life and the kingdom, and you end up losing life. And then he says, whoever loses their life, please know that does not mean try to hurt yourself or try to depart the earth prematurely. That's not what he's saying. It means all those things you used to love so much and live for, those passions, your own schemes of what makes life livable and worth it all, those have been put to death on the cross with Christ and your heart has been captivated by him, and you want to know his desire now, and you're delighted in his desires. And so, a main idea I want to give you here as we start to wrap up here. Notice pastors are very manipulative in the language they use, start to wrap up. That's very open-ended. We don't know if that gives you hope yet or not. We're sometimes so afraid of suffering that we are willing to give up real life just to superficially avoid momentary discomfort. We're sometimes so afraid of suffering that we're willing to give up real life just to superficially avoid momentary discomfort. Pain scares us. Suffering scares us. And much false teaching abounds. People are, are manipulated mentally, intellectually, to think, okay, if I, if I talk a certain way and quote certain Bible verses, then I can convince myself I will have this kind of earthly life that I greatly desire that's very comfortable. Even if a person in their 50s is convinced that they have this miraculous gift of prosperity, what's still going to happen eventually? What's coming eventually for everyone, no matter what? We need to think about this. We need to be ready for this. It's going to happen. We're going to suffer. There are very few easy paths out of here. It's not going to be pretty. It's not always going to be easy. But it's the path to real life. What a high and a holy calling we've been given. Philippians 1.29. To the church, it has been granted to you. Like, this is a privilege. Really hard to think of it in these terms, but it's true. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. What greater or more precious or powerful calling could we have than to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, who showed more than anyone has ever shown what life is truly about on this earth? And I want to encourage you to consider, is there, is there much that's more powerful on this earth than believers who suffer well? What's more encouraging to the body than that? Have you known those who've suffered so well? I love how John Piper puts it, don't waste your suffering. He wrote even a smaller little pamphlet, don't waste your cancer. Those who through their suffering, they find a more pure joy than they've ever known. They emerge on the other side of it with a stronger faith than they've ever had. They have a sweeter hope in God's eternal promises. And on the opposite side of that, what's more discouraging in the body, in the church, than professing believers when they suffer to then fall into despair and dejection and defeat and hopelessness and isolation and anger and sometimes just this sad fatalism? Few things are more discouraging than that, and on the other side, few things are more powerful than those believers who suffer well. These bitter fruits of the soul, on the on the bad side of this, when suffering produces very, very horrible things in a, a professing believer, those bitter fruits of the soul show that no matter what that profession of faith was at a, at a happier time in life, the faith really is only about as strong as the current circumstances of the lived experience. When life is good, God is good. What about in the shadowy valley? Is it enough that he is with you? Jesus is God in the flesh among his people. Is he enough for us? Why is Christmas Christmas? Why did it need to happen? What is God saying to us through the fact that it's happened. These words in Psalm 103, one last time here. I hope you can rejoice in this. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Friends, there was a time Jesus had not yet come to the earth. He was not here. He was not among his people. His spirit had not been poured out on all flesh. The gospel had not gone out into the world, but he is here now. His life was for you and me. His death was for us. His resurrection was for us. What a strange and yet holy, a painful, painful, and yet glorious reality. That of suffering and grieving while on earth, but in order that our joy and our hope and our peace might be sweetened and beautified and strengthened all the while. That we might be a people made ready to be with our God. There are times when it feels like he is not with us. We can admit that, just like the psalmist. There are times we don't suffer well. There's times we get it wrong. Did you know he still loves you then? You know, his grace is still sufficient for you then. We're all gonna fail probably in this regard. We'll mope, we'll complain, we'll cry out, we'll be desperate, we might be defeated sometimes and in despair, he loves you still. Wake up another day, lift your eyes, call out to your savior, the long expected one. We really are gonna end now. John 16, 20, Jesus said this to his disciples, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Remember what I said about the world? They get to have this kind of superficial freedom. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. I don't care who I hurt. If there's a God, he's going to be cool with it all. The world is rejoicing as they, they make a God of themselves and pursue whatever they want in life. And Jesus says to his disciples, You will grieve in this world. But your grief will turn to joy. Just wait and see. Jesus is saying, you guys, when you get to the end of this path, you'll hardly believe it. Wait till you see what I have in store for you. He gives this beautiful analogy, and some of you ladies will appreciate this. Jesus said, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. Any of you women can affirm that this morning in ways that us guys cannot? It's not always the funnest or easiest time, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. How many of you moms, after all the painful toil and the ravaging of the body, and you finally have that life in your hands and you feel the breath and you hear the cry, you're like, sorry, kid, one too many contractions. Somebody else can have this thing. Is that how it goes why did jesus use this analogy because for believers living in this world it's like a, a horribly laborious painful delivery through much toil comes life and so jesus says so it is with you now is your time of grief i mean he's getting ready to leave and so there's a direct literal context to that but i think we can take this and make it broader now is your time of grief but i will see you again are there are there hardly any words we could ever hear than that? Not just with our savior but with our our fellow believers. Instead of goodbye forever, all is lost, let's just go be miserable and die. How much better is it to say, you know what? I'll see you again. This isn't the last time we'll say goodbye. Or wait, that was weird. This isn't the last time we'll see each other. We'll say goodbye again. No. I will see you again and you will rejoice. And what does he promise then? No one will take away your joy. Nobody is going to take your joy from you. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. John 16, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Regardless of what that suit and tie on the TV says, who really wants your money, hear it from Jesus. If you're a true believer in this world, you're going to have some trouble at some point. But Jesus says, take heart. You've got me. I've overcome the world. I'll be with you. He is here. He is with us. He is for us. Christmas proves this. And so we raise our voices with a thousand generations before us and cry out, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Pam's going to come. and. Bless us with this song as we close here. Jesus comes, and he gives joy, and he gives hope, and he gives peace. It's who he is. It's what he does. One last little passage here as they're coming up that I want to end with. Often when we think of Christmas and the Nativity story and Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts, we, we often think of, of Jesus. We think of Mary and Joseph, maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's another little name and a little story that's just kind of snuck in there in Luke, and we don't often... Associate that immediately with Christmas. How many of you, when you think Christmas and the Bible, you think Anna? I had one lady just like almost jump off her seat in first service. So this was really like right down her lane. But for most of us, we don't think Anna when we think Christmas. But look at this passage in Luke 2 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, you know, she's finally beheld the fulfillment of the promise. Jesus has come, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were what? Looking forward to the redemption. It says Jerusalem, and we know, we know now Jerusalem is symbolic of the city of God where he dwells with his people forever. So we're all brought into this new, holy, heavenly Jerusalem. And so God's word through this Christmas narrative was coming through this prophet, this woman Anna, who spoke about the fulfillment of those who had been looking forward. Indeed, come and dwell in the heart of every person in this place. If you already dwell there, Lord, dwell richly and grow in and through us. Thank you that you have come. Thank you that you are here and you have made life available to us by giving us yourself. Lord, may we forget not all the benefits of those you have called and saved And help us, Lord, to live well on this earth, even in the difficult times, the good times as well. Lord, to show what it means to be a redeemed people who are being raised to life, to be with you forever. Go with us and keep us worshipful, I pray, this season uh, as we gather again tonight. May you be glorified through many songs and readings. And uh, be be the Lord in the light of it all, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.